So if you have a Bible with you, just want to invite you to turn over to 2 Peter. And we are in chapter 1, moving on to verse 16. Uh, and as you're turning there, I just want to acknowledge, I don't even know if they're in the room this morning, but we are really excited, Jake and Whitney Beverly, some of our missionaries that we have sent out from our church body, have been away, uh, they're back home, and so if you see them this morning, just encourage them. We're so thankful for men and women and families who leave our body to go take the gospel out, and we want to honor them. So just glad to have you guys here if you're in the room, and as you see them, just love on them. All right, as you find your place in Second Peter, I'm so excited uh, for us to get into this passage this morning and what we get to look at. And I'm so excited to get into Second Peter that I want you to put your finger there and turn over to Mark chapter 9, okay? So now that you've found Second Peter, turn over to Mark chapter 9. So we're going to start and then we're going to end in Second Peter, excuse me, together. And in Mark 9, uh, we see the context for what Peter's going to be speaking about in these verses that we're going to read together. So I'm going to start in in verse 2. And so this is after uh, Jesus' encounter with the disciples. And he said, you know, who do people say that I am? Who do you say that I am? Peter makes that declaration that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. This is coming right after that. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John... And led them up a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. That word transfigured is the same word where we get the word metamorphosis from. That he was changed in front of them. And his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi or teacher, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. And I love the the honesty of Scripture, verse 6, for he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. Have you ever been just so startled or out of it, you're just talking and it's not making any sense at all. You just don't even know what to say. All you know to do is talk. That's what's happening. This, This moment is so spectacular. Jesus' glory, he is fully God. And now he's kind of been veiled in humanity and his glory is now shining for everyone to see. And Moses and Elijah are there and Peter, James, and John, they don't even know what to do with it. And then verse 7, and a cloud overshadowed them. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my beloved son. Listen to him. God speaking over Jesus, the Father over the Son. These same words that were spoken over Jesus by the Father earlier on in Jesus' baptism. This is my son, the one who is beloved by the Father. Listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. Now that's important. Don't tell anyone what you've seen until after I've risen from the dead. Well now we turn over to 2 Peter. And in this letter that that Peter's writing to the churches, this is after the resurrection. And Peter's now going to talk about what he saw. Let's start in verse 16 together. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty, talking about the event we just read about in Mark's gospel. 
For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the, force of the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, and were with him on the holy mountain. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, to which you will do well to pay attention, as to a lamp shining at a dark place, until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. This is the word of the Lord. I'm so excited for us to be in this passage this morning. I was reading through this text and I was thinking about growing up and growing up uh, my, my parents were really big on us like reading and, and books and all that kind of stuff. So kids in the room, if your parents are asking you to read, it's a good thing. You should read. It'll help you grow up and learn. So you know, props to all the parents out there who are reading with their kids. So one of the things that I really enjoyed reading when I was kind of in middle school and early high school were the stories of Sherlock Holmes, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. So I don't know, that might make me a nerd if it is, okay, whatever. So I just, I enjoyed the mystery stories. And one of the things I loved about Sherlock Holmes is, is that every story was, was complicated and you really couldn't figure out who did it. And there was always these moments of tension. Is how is he going to solve this case? How is it all going to come together? How on earth is he going to put these things together? And then at the end of the mystery, what you would realize is that everything you needed to solve the case was right there. It was in front of you the whole time. It was just he had the ability to see it and put the pieces together and know who the criminal was or where the lost thing was. And he would bring all that together. And I think when, when we think about the Christian life, and you think about your life and think about my life, and we think about the people we're invested in as a church body, often we read passages like we've been reading here in 2 Peter, where we've been called to godliness, we've been called to holiness. The last three weeks we've been talking about what it means to make every effort, that we've been called to make every effort, to add to our faith, with godliness and excellence and brotherly affection and self-control and all these things, that we are to pursue Christ, we are to be growing in Christ. Last week we talked about how we are to persevere in making every effort and Peter's model of that, of even as an old man continuing to make every effort to help the gospel be known. And I don't know about you, but, but I read these verses and they're encouraging, they're good, but oftentimes I'm left saying, like, how do I do that? How do I add to my faith? How do I grow in love? How do I persevere? Like, I know I'm supposed to, but how do I do that? It feels a little like a mystery and a tension, and there's all these other voices coming in from the world that are distracting. And then there's all these voices coming in from kind of Christianity and Christian subculture in America saying, you should do this, and you should do that, and you should be less like this, and you should be more like that. And it's just really confusing. How do we know what to do? How do we persevere? How do we make every effort? How do we live these things out that God has called us to? And in this passage, Peter gives us the answer. He's kind of been setting everything up to this moment. And this is what Peter wants his readers to hear. This is what he wants you and I to hear this morning and to take great joy in. He's told us in the beginning of this letter that everything we need for life and godliness has already been given to us. So the question then for us is, okay, if we have everything we need, how do we live it out? 
Now Peter answers that question and he answers it in these verses. Now just if you have your Bible open again, look at verse 19. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed. What's he saying? Everything you need for life and godliness has been given to you. Everything you need to make every effort, everything you need to persevere has been given to you through the word of God. The word of God is our means for living out the Christian life. The word of God is our means for knowing the difference between truth and lie. The word of God is the, the way that we live the Christian life is by the living, breathing word of God. And this is our big truth this morning. Scripture is God's perfect self-revelation, our only trustworthy authority, and the means for growth in Christ's likeness. Now, it's a long one, but let's think about it together. Scripture is God's perfect self-revelation. It's the way He's revealed Himself to us. Everything you and I need to know about God is found in His Word. That's good news. There's no mystery that's hidden from us. It is given to us. But not only do we know about God through the Word, but the Word is trustworthy. It guides us in every aspect of our lives and it is authoritative for the way that we live and it also is the means for our growth. If you want to become more like Jesus, if you want to grow, if you want to make every effort, if you want to persevere, God's word shows us the way. That is good news for us this morning. Again, uh, in, in chapter 2 of 1 Peter, he says, We ourselves heard the voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain, talking about the transfiguration. He says, We not only have seen Jesus face to face, Peter, but there's something more sure, more steady that has been given to us even than that experience. What is it? The prophetic word. Earlier in Peter's first letter, he says this, For all flesh is like grass. And it's glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers, the flower falls. This is good news, church. The word of the Lord remains forever. This world deteriorates, we deteriorate, everything around us falls apart, but this word endures, amen? This word is true, this word lasts. And this is the word, the good news that was preached to you. In 1 Timothy 3, 16-17, the Apostle Paul, writing to his son the faith, says this, All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. The man or woman of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. It says God's word is alive. It's not just a book. It's not just words on a page. It is God's breath on a page. It is living. It is active. It is the way in which we see and know and understand God. It's the way that God speaks to us. Even in this moment, this is a crazy thought, in this room full of hundreds of people, God can and will speak to you through his word. And not just through me, but to you, through his word. That's an incredible thought, but it's true. Everything we need to be the people God has called us to be has been given to us through his word. In these verses, Peter's making a transition in the letter. He's been talking about holiness and Christ-likeness and our pursuit of those things. And he's showing us that the way, the means by which we pursue those things is the word of God. 
in the weeks ahead as we continue reading through the letter, he's going to begin to talk about false teaching and false teachers. Well, how do you know what false teaching is? How do you expose false teachers? It's through the Word of God. So Peter's showing the means by which we follow Jesus and the means by which we combat the darkness and lies of our age is through the Word of God, which leads us to such an important question this morning, church family. Do you trust the Word of God? Is God's Word your source of truth? Not your feelings, not your experience. Is God's Word your source of truth? And the second question, do you love the Word? Do you know the Word? Do you love the Word? Is the Word changing you? So two really important questions that that we need to wrestle with as we walk through this passage this morning. Question number one is this, why should we trust God's word? Why should we trust God's word? As as we go into this rest of this letter, we're going to see that there's a lot of questions being thrown at Peter and the, the teaching of the Old Testament. And so Peter's speaking now to why and how we know we can trust God's word. So why should we trust God's word? Second question is this, Do we trust God's word? Do you personally trust God's word? Do I? Not just do we mentally assent to it, but are we actively obeying it? Are we living like it is our source of truth? And so what I want us to do is just kind of walk through this passage. And really, in our time together, what I want to do is try to tackle that first question. Why should we trust God's word? Peter is going to explain to us why this word matters and why it is true and better and more fully confirmed than any other kind of prophecy that's been given. But where I hope we end this morning is I hope you wrestle with this question. Do you personally believe God's word? Are you a person of the word? Is it changing you? Is it your love? Is it your pursuit? Do you actually believe it in the way that you live your life? So let's just wrestle through this first question for the next several minutes together. Why should we trust God's word? I'm just going to walk through several big ideas that we see in this passage that I hope encourage your heart to love and know God's word and to love the scripture and to believe the scripture. And, and maybe you're here this morning and you come in, you're like, hey, you don't even have to preach on knowing and trusting God's word. Like, I'm all about it. I trust God's word. Maybe you're here this morning you're like, I do not trust God's word. You know, I'm just here because someone drugged me here or invited me and I'm pretty skeptical or you're somewhere in between. Wherever you are in it, I pray this would be an encouragement and help to you. So how do we know we can trust God's word? First big idea is this, God's word is true. God's word is true. Look with me in verse 16. Peter just goes straight for it. He says, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. What is Peter saying? We're not following myths. We're not following fables. We're not following stories. We are following the truth. The testimony that we've given to you is true. And not just because someone else said it was true, Peter's saying, I was personally there. I saw Jesus transfigured on the mountain. I saw him changed. I heard the voice from heaven. This isn't some second-hand account. This is an eyewitness account. These words are true. These things happen. We can trust God's word because it is true. 
He says the promises of Scripture are not made of myths, cleverly devised myths. He's dressing an accusation that's being brought against God's people. We'll deal with in weeks ahead. And he says the promises of Scripture, they have proof. Jesus' transfiguration is the proof of his power and his coming. And that word coming is not just a past tense word. It's the word that's used by Jesus talking about his second coming. So even now, Peter's anchoring in, because he's using the exact same language that Jesus uses in Matthew 24 and 25 when he talks about come again. He's saying that the same power that Jesus came in is the same power in which he will come again. These words are true, not just that it was something in the past, but it's something that's coming for us that we can trust and we can believe in because Jesus said it would happen. It was verified by eyewitnesses, not just Peter, who's living at this moment, but by the Apostle John as well. And if you go to John's Gospel in John chapter 1, verse 14, he talks about, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And he says, and we have seen his glory. What is John referring to? The transfiguration, the same event. That John was an eyewitness and Peter was an eyewitness. They saw these things together. It was a foundational component of their faith in Christ and their faith in this Word. And the promises of Scripture are fulfilling Old Testament prophecy. That all throughout the Old Testament, there was the promise of this Son of Man, this King, this Ancient of Days, this Passover Lamb, this suffering servant who would come and die for the sins of the people. And Peter's saying, Jesus is the fulfillment. Everything that was promised about Jesus has come true. God's Word is true. So here's the good news for you this morning. In case you're in doubt, and for some of you, you might be, because you go to school or you're around co-workers, we're in a world that calls into question the trustworthiness of Scripture. Friends, I just want to tell you this morning, the Bible that you hold in your hands is trustworthy. It's trustworthy. You can believe it. Even Peter's own example in this. He is an old man heading toward the end of his life and he's saying, I will make every effort to make these things known. Who at the end of their life keeps trying to make known a lie? He is giving himself to this because he knows it is true. He saw Jesus on the mountain. We can trust God's word. Peter's so confident in it that he's willing to persevere on. Jesus talking about God's word in John 17 in his prayer before going to the cross. He says this, sanctify them in the truth, praying to the Father. Your word is truth. Jesus believed that this word, the Old Testament, is true. It's true. So why is it trustworthy? Why can we believe it? Why do we know it's reliable? Because God's testimony, Jesus' testimony, the testimony of the apostles is this word in totality is true. It is true. You say, well, I don't believe them. Well, okay, you don't have to believe them. But the witness of Scripture is that all of Scripture is true. Not just some, but every single part of it. Which leads to a second big idea that Peter says about God's word. He says God's word centers on and magnifies Jesus. So he goes from saying what we don't know about myths, though he goes straight to Jesus. He goes straight to the transfiguration. All of scripture from Genesis 1 all the way to Revelation 22 is all pointing to Jesus. That he is the fulfillment. He is the center. He is the one that scripture is about. He is the one who brings salvation to us from the Father. 
God's word centers on and magnifies Jesus. Look at verse 16 and 17 with me. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from the Father and the voice was born to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. It centers on Christ. Peter is saying that everything in Scripture goes to Jesus. That's why his example is to turn to the transfiguration of Christ for us. So notice a few things that he says about Jesus. First in verse 16, he says Jesus is Lord. He says he is our Lord. That means he is master. That he is not just Savior, that he is king. He is ruler. In verse 16, it says that he is powerful his power is on display that word in the Greek means it's the same word we get dynamite from it's explosive power Jesus was not just a weak mild-mannered man who was kind to children those things are true but he was powerful he was full of power from God on high because he is God in verse 17 it says Jesus is worthy of honor and glory, that his honor and glory was on display at the transfiguration. In verse 17, it says that he is the Son of God who is God. If Jesus was lesser than God, if Jesus was created being, God would not say, this is my beloved, this is the one I give honor and glory to, because God cannot give honor and glory to anything lesser than himself. And so for God the Father to give honor and glory to anyone or anything means that what he's giving honor and glory to must be himself because he is the only one worthy of all glory and honor and praise in the universe Jesus is God the Son we see that Jesus is the true and better fulfillment of the law the prophets and the kings that Moses and Elijah were there on the mountain this statement my beloved son is a quotation from Psalm chapter 2 talking about the son the promised son who would come, the son of the father, the son of eternity. And so in this moment, we see Moses who represents the law. We see Elijah who represents the prophets. We hear this declaration that represents the king, the Davidic king is going to come. All of that is fulfilled in Jesus. All scripture points to him. Jesus is the true and better fulfillment of all of God's word. Our hope is found in Christ. So what does that mean for us? As we read Scripture, we should always read Scripture looking to Jesus. And not every single passage or every single verse is directly speaking to Jesus, but all throughout the Old Testament and New is pointing us to see Him as our Savior, as our hope, as the coming Messiah, as the one who is our rescuer. That also means for us this morning, friends, that our lives should center on and magnify Jesus. If the word of God is centered on Christ as the Savior, our lives should be centered on Christ as the Savior. Is your life centered on Jesus? All of scripture points to him. Luke 24, 25 through 27, Jesus said this on the road to Emmaus. He said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe, all the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he, being Jesus, interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Anybody would like to be a part of that Bible lesson? Wouldn't that be amazing? 
for Jesus to open up the Old Testament law and prophets and take you through a tour of how all of that points to him. Jesus says, all of Scripture centers on me. It reveals me. It points to me. And so another application for us, church, this morning is this. If you ever hear, or listening to a podcast, you're reading a book, you're on the news, you're talking to a friend, any person who diminishes the deity of Christ, the atoning work of Christ on the cross, or tries to explain away the teachings of Christ, is a false teacher and his false teaching. The word of God always magnifies Christ. It never distorts Christ. It never takes away from Christ. And we live in a world where people want to shift and twist kind of who Jesus is and what he's done. I wish we had more time to chase that. We will on another day. Let's just keep going. Third big idea is this. God's word is more trustworthy than personal experience. God's word is more trustworthy than personal experience experience. I want you to think about this. This is so important for us today. So this is the crux of this passage. Look at verse 18. We ourselves heard this very voice, born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. Listen to verse 19. And we have a prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention. Here's what Peter's saying. He was on the mountain of transfiguration. He saw Jesus glow, literally glow. In the Old Testament, God's glory comes down on people. Here, the God's glory is coming out through a person because he is God. Jesus is changed visibly in front of them. Moses, who is dead, is now back to life. Elijah, who is dead, is now walking alive. Peter's seeing these things, and now he hears this voice from heaven speak over Jesus. This is my son, the one who is dearly loved, the one who's beloved. Know him, follow him, listen to him. Think about that moment. Think about what you would think about and what it would be like to be there. I mean, the gospel's account is Peter's terrified. He doesn't know what to do. Hang with me for a moment. Listen to what Peter says about that moment in verse 19. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed. What is he saying? We have a word that is more sure than my experience of seeing Jesus transfigured on the mountain. It is the word of God. That this word is more sure and more true than seeing Jesus, hearing the voice of God, seeing men raised from the dead. And all of that amazing experience does not hold to God's word. God's word is greater than that. It is more sure than that. It is more firm than that. That God's word is more trustworthy than our personal experience. Something more certain and sure than what he saw with his eyes is in the word. Listen to me, church. That's sitting in your lap. There's something better in front of you. Something more true, more certain. Have you ever had this thought before? Man, it would be really nice if I could just spend some time with Jesus face to face. Anybody ever had that thought before? I have, okay. So, all right, three of you with me. That's awesome. If you're thinking, man, this this situation would be so much better if Jesus was with me. I, I don't know what to do about this decision. It's so difficult. I just wish Jesus was personally next to me that I could ask him, talk to him about it. I wish I could just experience that with him. Peter's saying you have something better than Jesus with you. 
You have God's word. It's alive, it's true, it's working, it's speaking. It speaks to all of life. You have something better than the presence of Jesus physically with you. You have the Holy Spirit living in you and you have God's word in your hand. There's something greater that God has given us than our personal experience. It is the word of God. This is important, brothers and sisters, for two reasons. One, because the culture around us is constantly telling us that nothing is more valid and nothing is more sure and nothing is more true than what you feel. That you need to be true to yourself, that you need to follow your heart, that what you think and what you've experienced in your lifetime and in your moment is your truth. And your truth is your truth and no one can take away your truth. That's not what God's word says. There's something more sure than your experience. Your experience will lie to you. Your heart will lie to you. It will be distorted to you. You need something better and something greater. And by God's grace, we have something greater. God's word. But this is not just a lie that we hear from the culture. This is a challenge that happens so much in the church. So friends, hang with me for just a minute. I I, want to kind of unpack this for a second because I want to get at the root of how this lie can play with your heart and play with my heart. We are prone to value relatability and personal affirmation over truth. You and I are prone to put people in our lives who will relate to us and we feel a connection to and who will affirm us and validate us and we will value that over the truth of God's word. It is a temptation facing your heart and your mind, my heart and my mind. We are prone to value people who can identify with us more than we value people who know and love and are growing in the truth. Let me give you a few examples, and I'm just going to own it. Might step on some toes if you upset. Just email me, mlauren at tcbchurch.org. Be happy to get back to you and answer any questions you have. And so I want to give you a few examples. These are things I've heard again and again and again in ministry at our church over the last decade. And as I, as I walk through these examples, I'm not trying to get at the example itself, but I want you to get at and think about the root underneath it. And my prayer is the Holy Spirit begin to help us think through how we approach pursuing truth. So a few examples of how we will trust our experience and our desire for affirmation over pursuing truth and people who will help us pursue truth. One of the ways that I've dealt with many people who've wrestled through this is through the lens of church hurt. And I was really hurt by my last church. I was really wounded by some things that people did to me, some things that people said to me, and so... That's why I don't really get involved. That's why I don't get in community. That's why I'm not really pursuing this kind of group. Because my experience of hurt is more valid and valuable than my pursuit of truth, even if it means I might be hurt again. Are we putting experience first? Are we putting 
the truth of God's word truth. I will ignore that scripture calls me to be devoted to one another because my past experience is more valid than the commands of God's word. Just keep being offensive. Let's keep going. Another example, family discipleship. Man, my kids are really struggling to connect at church, and my kids are really struggling to be in the Word. My kids are really struggling this thing, so we're going to kind of stay away from church. We're going to begin to look at a different church, or, you know, I'm not going to push Scripture. I'm not going to pursue those things because they're having a hard time with it. They're wrestling with it. It's really difficult, and so we're going to kind of pull back or pull away or focus on ourselves or look for something else. What you're saying is your kids' experience are more important than the pursuit of truth. Are we elevating truth of God's word over what's happening in our lives or are we elevating what's happening in our lives over the truth of God's word? Another example, community and relationships. And often I'll be in conversations and I'll hear things like this, like I really want to be with people who are in my stage of life. You have kids in a similar season as me or similar stage of work as me. I really want to be with people who kind of know what I'm going through. And that's not wrong. That's not bad in and of itself. But I want us to hear what's happening in that moment. What we're saying is I value being able to relate to other people. And I value being affirmed by people who understand what I'm going through. Instead of the litmus test being, is this group going to help me pursue the word? Is this group going to drive me to truth? Is this relationship going to help expose the lies of my heart? And maybe those people you want to be with, they're in your age, they're your season of life, they're in the exact same thing, and they are going to push you toward the gospel. Praise God, be with them. But if we're not careful, we'll buy into the lie that we need people who are more like us and where we are, even if those people may not be pursuing truth at the level in which we need. All right, one more being offensive, and we can talk after the service. Um, Discipleship. We're talking a lot about making disciples. We're talking a lot about investing in people. One of the things that I've heard and I've helped counsel people through many times is this. Like, I can't help someone unless I've experienced what they're going through. I can't serve someone who's lost a child unless I've lost a child. I can't serve someone who's been through divorce unless I've been through divorce. I can't serve someone with kids unless I've been through kids. Well, that's true if you're not serving them with truth. But if you're serving them with truth, friends, serve them with truth. God's word is the truth, not your experience, not your being able to understand everything they're going through. You're never going to fully understand what someone else is going through. Bring the truth of the word. Or I've heard the reverse of that. Like, I'm not going to listen to that person. I'm not going to let that person in because they don't understand what I'm going through. Friend, Jesus does. And his word is true. And so I, I walk through these examples. I take the time to do that, not to throw stones, not to make you feel uncomfortable, not to hurt, but I want us to wrestle through the root issues of why we make the decisions that we do. Brothers and sisters, I love you. I love you. I'm so thankful to be in this church with you. And I want to see you love the word more than being affirmed and validated by others. I want to see you love the word more than just feeling good 
So I'm going to see you become more like Jesus. Because that's where hope is. That's where life is. That's where joy is. May we be a people who value God's word and find it trustworthy over our personal experience. I love Psalm 73, and I wish I could read the whole psalm. I don't have time to. I would encourage you to go back and read it. But in Psalm 73, the psalm writer, it's not David, it's one of the other writers, he's, he's talking about all the injustice of the world. He's talking about his experience. And he's saying it doesn't make sense and it's not fair and it doesn't, it doesn't fit and I don't understand why good things happen to bad people and why bad things happen to good people. None of this makes sense to me. It becomes a wearisome task. And this is what he says in verse 16 through 17. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until I went to the sanctuary of God, the place where God's word was taught and declared. Then I discerned their end. What's he saying? Life makes sense when it is put in front of God's word and God's presence. What shapes us and reorients our life is not our experience, it is the truth. Are we a people who value the truth of God's word over our experience? A couple more big ideas really quickly this morning. Next one he says is this, God's word is light in our darkness. It is light in our darkness. Look at verse 19. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your hearts. What's he saying? God's word is a light for us in a world of darkness, but not just a world of darkness. Friends, our minds, apart from God's word and the Holy Spirit, are dark because of sin. We can't see clearly. We don't know what's right. They're darkened to us. And so God's word is a light, is a lamp. It points us to what is true. It points us to what is right. So he's saying, run after the light. Chase the light. Be a people who see the light and run after it. Pay attention to it. Recognize there's darkness all around you and run after the light. When you're in the dark and you experience the light, you long for the light. God's word is light. Long for it. Run after it. And when he's talking about until the day dawns and the morning star rises, there's a a prophecy in Numbers 24 where it talks about a star rising out of the house of Jacob, referring to Jesus. Then in Revelation 22, it, it directly calls Jesus the morning star. So he's saying, you have the light, you have the word. And one day when Jesus comes back again, all will be illuminated. You'll be able to see everything. You will understand it all. But until that day, Run after the light. It is our light in the darkness. Psalm 119, 105 says, Your word is a lamp to my feet, a light to my path. Psalm 19, 7-8, The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. God's word is a light to us, is a beacon of truth in a dark world in our dark hearts and minds next big idea god's word is inspired by the holy spirit why can we trust word god's word because it has been inspired by the holy spirit verse 20 knowing this first of all that no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of men but men spoke from god as they were carried along by the holy spirit what what's he saying 
Two things. One, Scripture is its own authority. We don't come to God's Word and say, hey, what does this passage mean to you or what does this passage mean to me? No, what does this passage say? What did the author intend it to mean? What does the Holy Spirit saying through the Word? That God's Word is its own authority to us. The second thing that it's saying is that the Holy Spirit is the author of Scripture. That every single verse, every single word, every single book of the Bible was given by inspiration of the Holy Spirit. That doesn't mean that the authors weren't involved. It's not that they were just a robot and God was just kind of filling their body and writing through their hands. No, it means that everything that they wrote was through inspiration, burden, conviction of God speaking to them. And that word carried along is the picture of a ship. A ship out on the ocean and the wind filling its sails and pushing it through the water. In that same way, the Holy Spirit was guiding those men to know what to write and what to say to that time that has become God's Word for us. It is inspired by the Holy Spirit, so it has authority, it has reliability in it. So God's Word is true. It centers on and magnifies Jesus. It's more trustworthy than our experience. It's light in the darkness. It's inspired by the Holy Spirit. Last big idea, and I'll invite the team to come up. God's word requires a response. It requires a response. We can't stay neutral with God's word. Look again at verse 19. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed. And listen to what he says. This is a charge, a command, an admonition to which you will do well to pay attention. To which you will do well to pay attention. Attention, he is saying that we are to respond to the word. We are to obey the word. It requires a response to us. The word pay attention means to be alert, be on guard, to consider carefully, to agree with, to continue to believe, to give yourself or be devoted to. He's saying we need to be devoted to the teachings of this word. We need to know the truth and walk in the truth. Which leads to the last question as we respond this morning. Do you believe this word? Is this word the source of truth? Is this your guide? Not do you believe that God's word, that the Bible is from God or trustworthy. I think most people in the room, you would probably say, yeah, I do believe it's true. I believe it's trustworthy. Here's my question. Do you live like it's true? Is it changing the way you live? Is it changing the way that you respond? So if you're here this morning, you're saying, okay, well, how do I know whether I'm a person of the word? Let me just give you four tests really quickly. These come from Ezra 7.10 talking about Ezra, and this is what he says. He set his heart to know the word. Here's test number one. Do you love the Bible? Not do you have a Bible. Do you love God's word? Is it the way you know him? Is it the way you follow him? Do you read God's word because you're supposed to? You read God's word to know God. Do you love the word? It's a test. Second, do you study the word? Do you give time and effort and energy to read it, to meditate on it, to grow in it, to try to unpack it, to apply it to your heart? Do you love it? Do you study it? Third question, 
Do you obey the word? God's word is not just to be read and then set aside and go about our day. No, we are to read it and then respond to it every day. Lord, what do I do with this? How do I walk in obedience to you? And then the last test is this. Do you teach it to others? Ezra 7.10, he set his heart to love the word, to read the word, to obey the word, to teach the word. One of the ways we know that God's word is our source of truth is we tell others about it. We teach it. Friends, do you love the word? Just want to pray for us and give us an opportunity to respond. I know it's a lot to take in this morning. Father God, I just I pray for my friends. I pray that you would grow our love for your word. Pray that you grow our confidence in your word. I pray you grow our pursuit of your word. For anyone who's here this morning who has doubts about the word, I pray that even now you begin to speak to those doubts. I pray for anyone here this morning who's never been changed, transformed, saved through the God's word that you would save them this morning. You'd open their eyes to see it. I pray for our church family. We, we'd be a people who value your word over our experience, over the truth of culture, over the truth of people around us. But your word would be our anchor, our love. Would you please do that in us? It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.